The Science Inside Podcast. This is The Science Inside. Good evening to The Science Inside, bringing you the latest news stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am your host, Nondumi Solehuzo, and in this week's show, we look at the importance of preserving our water. Now, South Africa has been classified as a water-stressed country because it is experiencing water scarcity and this has been going on for a while. Fresh water is decreasing in availability in our country and this is attributed to factors like the increase in pollution, the destruction of wetlands, deforestation and mining. And these are the factors that we are all familiar with since primary, right? So our country is also characterized by an alternative mix of droughts and floods, which affects the amount of water throughout the country. According to the Department of Water and Sanitation's National Integrated Water Information System, a total of 339 out of 565 rivers are categorized as having low flows in the country. That actually means that one third of South Africa's main rivers are in good condition, only one third. On top of that, we don't have a water source big enough to solve our water crisis. It is thus that today on our show, we are going to tackle the ways in which water can be preserved with the addition of climate change affecting the ways in which we can sustain our water. But of course, we will unpack this a little bit later on the show. Linda, what do you think about deja vu? Every once in a while, I have so many questions about it, but I can't say that I don't enjoy predicting the next move. Funny enough, (laughs) on Science Today, on Unscience Today, we discover another way in which our brain tricks us into believing we knew what would happen in the next moment of deja vu when we actually don't have the ability to predict events, especially in that state. Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing this. Yes, but for right now, we go into the news with you, Linda Gutletimakwe. In your news making headlines this week, long awaited vaccine outperforms itself and dispossession of black families increases with mining activities. Good evening, I am Linda Gushetimakwe. Dengue fever or break bone fever is a mosquito-borne tropical disease caused by the dengue virus. Symptoms typically begin 3 to 14 days after infection and this may include a high fever, headache, vomiting, muscle and joint pains and a characteristic skin rash. There is no specific medicine to treat dengue infection. As such, when one assumes to have contracted it, treatment includes fluids and pain relievers whilst severe cases require hospital care. To many people's surprise, however, an experimental dengue vaccine has shown promising early results in a large multi-country trial, but critical questions remain about its effectiveness and safety. Still unclear, for example, whether the vaccine, which had an efficacy of 80.2% in the study, might increase disease severity in some recipients, as happened with the dengue vaccine given to 1 million children in the Philippines before the problem became clear in 2017. Dengue virus infects about 390 million people each year and the disease is rapidly increasing its reach around the world. Although it typically causes flu-like symptoms or none at all, severe cases can lead to hemorrhagic fever, shock and even death. 
According to Derek Wallace, a clinician who heads the R&D project at pharmaceutical company Takeda in Cambridge, Massachusetts, even less than ideal vaccines can still have a public health impact. To test the vaccine, which is based on a weakened strain of the dengue virus, Wallace and colleagues randomly distributed it, or a placebo, to 20,000 children aged 14 to 16 in eight countries across Asia and Latin America, where the disease is endemic. Twelve months after participants received their second final dose, the researchers compared how many people in the placebo and vaccine groups developed confirmed cases of infection with any of the four different strains or serotypes of dengue virus. The vaccine had 97.7% efficacy against the dengue 2 serotype, as the team reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, NEJM, That figure dropped to 73.7% for serotype 1 and 62.3% for serotype 3. There were too few infections with serotype 4 to reach any conclusions. In participants who had confirmed dengue infections, the vaccine reduced to risk hospitalization by 95.4%. Even Jeremy Ferrar, head of Wellcome Trust Biomedical Charity in London, who's a dengue researcher, can attest to the results being encouraging. One of the peculiarities of dengue is that people who develop protective antibodies to only one serotype are more at risk of severe disease if they become infected by one of the other three types. Paradoxically, the antibody against the initial serotype sometimes does not stop the second virus and actually speeds the infection process. Scott Halstead, a dengue researcher who came up with this antibody enhancement theory, long warned that the Sanofi vaccine might trigger more severe disease if given to children who had never had dengue virus infection. It is these initially so-called serotonin-negative children who eventually were found to have increased rates of hospitalization if they received dengue Data from 18 months after the last vaccine is planned to be presented on the 23rd of November at the annual meeting of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. Wallace says the data are consistent with the NEJM findings and the company plans to soon seek regulatory approval in affected countries. Just recently, Takenda opened a new plant in Germany to manufacture the vaccine. Regulators and health, public health officials have the difficult task of weighing the risks and benefits of any dengue vaccine against an increasing global burden of the disease. What the likelihood of a perfect vaccine is and whether the data are sufficient to favour using it are pending questions for the researchers. And on to our final story. Mining companies and some heritage consultants fail to understand the sacredness attached to ancestral remains and the meaning of land in African communities. Dispossession in South Africa is associated with the period of colonialism and apartheid. As a result, not much consideration is given to how previously marginalized black communities continue to be dispossessed by coal mining activities in democratic South Africa. In a paper that formed part of Dineos Kosana's PhD work, a researcher at the University of the Witwatersrand, there was an investigation on what communities lose because of coal mining. The research was conducted in a town that lies 29 kilometers southwest of Witbank, Emelahleni in Bumalanga province. From her work were discoveries that the relocations continue as a result of coal mining, companies buying up land owned by white farmers. Black farm dw- dwellers and labor tenants are given short shrift because the mining companies Companies see houses and graves as mere movable structures and therefore replaceable. Dispossession is historically thought about only in relation to land, but this framework is limited given that relocation affects more than people's homes. It happens to graves of their families as well. 
In her research, she refers to this as loss of intangible, where families lose their spiritual security, identity, heritage and belonging. Household and grave relocations feature as an aspect of dispossession in her research. Skosana traced the relocation of 120 families between 2012 and 2016 from multiple farms 112 kilometers east of Johannesburg. Families were moved to make way for the Rudenhoven open-cast columnary mine, which is owned by the global mining giant Glencore. The study found that graves are subject to contestation because of contradictions in South Africa's laws. On the other hand, the National Heritage Resource Act of 1999 protects graves. But the South African Mineral and Petroleum Resources Development Act of 2002 allows land to be used for mining purposes. The result is that the laws undermine government's stated objective of protecting previously marginalized communities. Importantly, the study also found that graves are material evidence of a history that is entangled, entangled rather, with narratives of land dispossession and restoration even today. Graves matter because they validate citizenship for African communities that were previously denied such status. Relocating graves for mining activities removes the material obstacles to a company's desire to make a profit. For the affected families, though, the relocation erases the evidence of their historical ties to a place and, above all, disrespects their ancestors. Mining companies have to provide heritage impact assessment reports when they apply for mining rights, in line with the Mineral and Petroleum Resources Development Act and the National Heritage Resources Act. The reports often detail the structures which will be impacted during development. And Section 36 of Heritage Act Act rather, graves are classified and protected according to their age and spatial location. But these measures, which are meant to reduce any possible adverse effects of mining on communities, aren't enough. The Minerals Act trumps the Heritage Act in most cases. This is evident in that no mining right or development has been denied because of the existence of graves on the site. Moreover, mining houses and to some extent heritage consultants who are hired by mines to facilitate these relocations do not understand people's attachment to their homes and the sacredness attached to ancestral remains, as well as the meaning of the land in African communities. The intricate meanings of land in African communities were best described by an anthropology professor, Peter Jishai. He noted that when a child is born in most African community, communities, her umbilical cord is buried in the soul to mark the space to which she shall be returned when she dies. Essentially, the piece of land becomes sacred at the birth and in death. The people's stories reveal a continued violation of the previously marginalized black majority. Even in death, the colonial and apartheid era experiences remain very much part of post-apartheid South Africa. Recapping your stories for the week, long-awaited dengue vaccine outperforms itself and dispossession of black families increase with mining activities. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. Now, as I have mentioned, South Africa is a water-stressed country. With that being said, Professor Milkless Scholes has made it his vocation to create an environment in which everyone can have access to adequate water. His research focuses on a number of aspects, including wetland rebuilding, sustainable and sustainable drainage water, and ponds. In this story, he focuses on Alexandra, Johannesburg, to bring up new alternative ways to sustain our water.
I would like you to briefly introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about the current research that you are working on, on wetlands and constructing wetlands for water sustainability for the future. My name is Mikla Scholz. Originally, I come from Germany. So currently, I have a full-time position at Lund University in Sweden and a part-time position of 20% at Salford University, Manchester, and a 25% position at Johannesburg University. And uh, a little bit, I also work in, in China, in Chengdu. So in terms of uh, the work uh, that I'm doing in South Africa, we are mainly interested in trying to lift uh, the water research at Johannesburg University to a high level. And that's my, the main job. And we've started this by uh, winning a grant last year in November of about 1.52 million euros. It's called Rain Solutions. And Rain Solution is about sustainable urban water management. And part of this uh, grant consortium of Rain Solution is also Johannesburg University and Pretoria University, together with Lund. And we are leading this in Lund. And I'm the principal uh, investigator. So we started off there to have a look at sustainable water management in South Africa, in particular in, in Hauteng and more specifically in Johannesburg. And our great interest is very much in uh, the area of informal settlements in Alexandra. There are about uh, 600,000 uh, people living and uh, it was designed from very, very few people in comparison to this one. I think only about 70 uh, or 60,000 people. And it has grown completely out of control. And uh, you could argue that uh, people live there under very hellish conditions. What people outside South Africa would probably called slums, in particular in terms of wastewater treatment or the lack of it, in terms of water supply or the lack of it, in terms also of uh, rainwater or stormwater management, again, or the lack of it. My last visit to South Africa, this was last week, and I went there together with representatives of uh, Johannesburg uh, Water, uh, Johannesburg Water uh, suit, so that uh, I can blend in a little bit better, and then they've shown me uh, how the people live there, and uh, uh, what the problems are, and I was very, very shocked about what I've seen, and I thought that uh, what we do in terms of our sustainable water management, in particular our uh, wetland systems, I'm thinking about wetland systems, I'm thinking about grey water systems for roofs and uh, for uh, sidewalls, um, I think it would be very suitable to try it out. Also to uh, think about the water, energy and food nexus in that area and try to combine water harvesting uh, with water treatment, recycling of water for gardening and potentially if there's a need for any kind of uh, movement of water uh, against uh, gravity, basically upflow to use solar energy in order to uh, uh, make the water flow upwards. So basically you could uh, look at water food energy nexus in this kind of area and we are now writing two uh, large grant applications which are building on our past experience of rain solutions and uh, both of them are looking at nature-based solutions including wetland systems in cities and these are cities of the future cities of 2050, for example, where you would expect many, many more people uh, across the world to live like people live at the moment in Alexandra. And we're trying to think about technologies in order to address uh, the challenges that people are facing now, but also in the future, and try to get people involved in these technologies uh, to help them to create a better future for themselves. But also we are trying uh, to remove barriers which are there at the moment that prevent new technology, technology 
difficulties from being successful in these areas. So I think this gives you a bit of an indication of uh, my background, where I work, what I'm doing, but also some grant applications and an existing grant uh, where I've tried to outline what the challenge is and how we want to address it. I'm really glad that you mentioned Alexandra because it has been a very problematic area for South Africa. But before we go into the problems, I'd like you to just tell me about the things that have stood out for you as you were assessing the area. What were the challenges that you came across? Yeah, I mean, what stands out uh, for me coming uh, from originally a very small village in the north of Germany and living in a very wealthy country like Sweden is that when I go to South Africa in general, but specifically when we drive uh, through parts of Alexandra is the enormous poverty and uh, uh, the enormous gap between uh, uh, poor and, and, and rich. And uh, for me, uh, more than uh, a water management problem, the whole thing is a social uh, problem and a political problem. I know that might not be the, the main uh, uh, thrust of the interview, uh, and I have to say, I'm I'm a liberal, yeah, by uh, uh, social liberal by conviction, and uh, politically I'm a liberal. But when I see uh, the poverty there, then uh, I have to say that I could become a socialist too, because this is an injustice that I'm seeing there, which is very very difficult uh, for me to uh, to face. And I get very emotional when I see, uh, for example, children playing there in the rubbish, playing next to uh, contaminated uh, stream water, playing next to puddles, uh, which essentially are diluted sewage. And uh, I found, I've got very emotional when I've seen this. So that's the first thing, thing what I see. I also see uh, that uh, it's completely unregulated, the situation there. People build wherever they want. Uh, the state has almost no control over, over the area. It seems to be pretty lawless. It seems that uh, people uh, don't really want to go there and work there because it's too dangerous. It seems also that the people uh, who are there have resigned to their faith. In particular, when I'm thinking about people uh, living close to the riverside and the river regularly goes over its banks and floods the area. And uh, I'm wondering uh, why so little progress has been made on this. But coming back uh, to uh, the area of my expertise in terms of, uh, of water and of uh, treatment, uh, water supply of wastewater management and stormwater management, I have to say that uh, I was shocked to see in this area that there is uh, very little uh, in terms of uh, proper water supply and uh, also in terms of wastewater it seems to be uh, completely uh, out of control the situation you have open uh, sewers uh, in that area there doesn't seem to be much in terms of stormwater management at all so I'm thinking about uh, people living in particular in, on the flood banks uh, near this, the, the, the river going through the system that uh, they basically get regularly flooded uh, they uh, move away, they come back again when the flood uh, sus uh, subsides and uh, rebuild uh, the shacks. The whole riverbank is full of litter, it's full of rubbish, it's full of runoff water after storm that drains uh, through uh, mountains of, of rubbish, uh, uh, leading to uh, uncontrolled diffuse pollution discharge into uh, uh, into the stream. And uh, that uh, is a big challenge uh, that needs to be addressed. What could the health implications be? Because you have noticed that these people have been living there for a very long time and the issues haven't been resolved for a very long time. But 
What are the health implications associated with this not being attended to as a matter of urgency? Yes, I mean, uh, the obvious thing is that these people can't have a very long lifespan, considering that uh, the water supply at best is uh, is intermittent. Uh, the wastewater situation is not resolved, and uh, stormwater is mixed uh, with wastewater, dilutes it, but uh, then it flows uncontrolled uh, through uh, through the different estates, through the, through the neighborhood. So essentially, uh, people who uh, uh, consume uh, the dirty water, uh, they obviously get ill, and uh, that uh, might lead to, to serious health implications, considering that uh, uh, when people uh, who have uh, malnutrition, that uh, their immune system is particularly weak, and uh, they are more likely to get uh, to get ill. And uh, I could imagine that uh, there must be a big health crisis there as well. I mean, a lot of people who I've seen uh, seem to be uh, very, very slim, seem to be not in a very good uh, good health. I've seen a lot of people with mental health problems there as well. I don't think this is necessarily linked to the water, but the poor uh, living conditions in general. So, and it doesn't help that uh, there is uh, a very bad access uh, to clean water and the sanitation conditions are so that uh, they probably are not uh, able to always clean uh, themselves, uh, clean the hands and so on when they eat. So, that uh, leads obviously to a lot of public health challenges. But that can only be addressed through uh, actually radical changes on the ground. And the overpopulation which is there needs to be uh, addressed. There are basically too many people uh, on the system or uh, that what is there and if you can call it system. And I wouldn't uh, know how we can actually reduce the population there to a manageable uh, level. And again, that would be political challenge. Talk to me about um, the, the river system in Alexander. I know you've done some research on river flow anomalies. What have you noticed about the river system? I understand that uh, there's a main uh, river which goes through the system, which ends uh, at the end uh, in, a, in a large dam. You get a lot of pollution uh, associated uh, with runoff from uh, these informal settlements directly into the river. There's nothing which stops the runoff of uh, of the diffuse pollution or the point source pollution, as it seems. And uh, then a lot of contaminated sand- sediment is finally concentrated in essentially drinking water reservoirs. Then it will be a long-term problem because under certain conditions like low pH value or high salt concentration, you get leaching out of the contaminants from the sediment into the above uh, uh, water. So what is missing essentially is uh, systems which control uh, the, the discharge of stormwater and uh, of uh, wastewater. Also what is missing are buffer strips uh, along the riverbank which uh, protects uh, the river from uh, the uncontrolled runoff. And uh, that doesn't seem to be very easy uh, to implement because people are living almost close to the river, to the water level, and uh, these houses will need to be removed and need to be replaced uh, by uh, systems uh, like wetlands, for example, uh, treating uh, the runoff water. Yeah. So and again, that ends up then in, in a political uh, problem because the people need space. There isn't enough space, so they take the space which is available. Some air. Uh, Regulation that is enforceable would need to be uh, used in order to change the situation and people would need to be rehoused. Okay, can I just clarify something? Were you saying that 
because of the lack of reinforcement, that water that is flowing through the river actually does get mixed up with the drinking water that people consume and use to bath with. Essentially, the, the, the runoff it goes into the river and the river water later on goes into reservoirs and the reservoirs are the basis for, for the drinking water supply and needs to be uh, uh, cleaned more, which obviously is more, is more costly the more contamination goes in there. And it's very difficult to get rid of everything that runs off from these from informal settlements. And there is then uh, the long-term problem of river uh, receiving polluted uh, water and sediment, and this is then washed off in, in holding reservoirs. And there it's a little bit like a time bomb because uh, you would need to regularly uh, get rid of the sediment, which is very, very costly and uh, uh, is not often practiced. And the sediment is essentially is contaminated land and would need to be treated like that. The other problem uh, was regulation. You have a lot of regulation in your country, but very little uh, enforcement as it seems. And it doesn't matter if it has to do uh, with uh, water supply and uh, the charging system for it, or if it has to be uh, with clean water status of, uh, of river. The regulations are there, guidance is there, also knowledge is there, but enforcement is lacking. And also, it uh, seems the, the, the finances to actually uh, do radical change. Wow, this is just like we talking. So are you saying that the water that ends up into the reservoirs is not more check up? So that the water is thoroughly clean because it would cost you more mean the money. water which uh, which uh, uh, runs off either uh, uh, wastewater discharge directly or mixed with stormwater into into the river uh, is obviously not uh, fully cleaned by the river because the, the river is, is too polluted and the self cleansing capacity of, of, of the river is, se- is severely uh, armed because of the of the over pollution basically and that ends up in reservoirs and the reservoirs are used for drinking water purposes and would need to be cleaned so the reservoir themselves, but also the water which you abstract from, from there, which is very, very costly. So that's basically a, a problem from the scientific point of view. But the other issue is uh, with uh, regulation, that you have a, a lot of uh, regulation there, but the enforcement is actually lacking. And that goes to various uh, parts uh, of society, uh, far beyond uh, uh, the problem of Alexandra. And uh, when you think about it, the money that is uh, uh, gained from cleaning the water and selling it uh, to people is reinvested in the infrastructure. And when you have a situation that maybe 10, 15 percent uh, only of the people in Alexandra pay and maybe 85 or 90 percent plus uh, in uh, the richer areas like Santon, then uh, there is uh, not enough money there to actually invest in uh, the infrastructure that you have there. So the money has to come from somewhere to need to be invested there to uh, upgrade the infrastructure. But the problem is uh, also social one, because if you upgrade the infrastructure, very often uh, the people who live there... Uh, because uh, they are angry, uh, which I can fully understand, and uh, also not necessarily uh, educated, uh, very often either uh, uh, demolish or steal or uh, just damage the infrastructure which is there, or simply dig out pipes uh, when they're angry and there is a, a, how can I say, when the mob goes through uh, uh, the, the streets and uh, yeah, unloads the angriness. On, on on so they, they basically uh, destroy their own systems. So you would you would have to come up with a uh, treatment solution, solutions and water conveyance solutions that are very, very cheap, that are uh, not attractive for, uh, I think I learned the phrase upcycling in, uh, in South Africa, basically that's not stolen or, or damaged. 
So, and there, uh, technologies that are more nature-based uh, would be quite suitable. So, think about uh, wetland systems, uh, which essentially holds in the ground, uh, filled with uh, gravel, planted. There is no uh, pipes uh, which have a resale value. There are no uh, other material there as well with a resale value that would make it attractive uh, to uh, dismantle the system. So, there's no generator, there's no electricity, electricity needed. So, these kind of systems might be quite good for this area. However, very often they uh, require uh, larger land and uh, therefore if you have a, a situation uh, where you have eight or ten times more people in an area than it's designed for there isn't enough space there to actually install these systems so you have a dilemma you can't uh, put normal infrastructure in place because it's being dismantled taken away sold off or destroyed uh, when people are angry and you can't really have a sustainable infrastructure solution there as well because they require too much space and there isn't enough space and also the people who should erect this might not want to go in these areas to work there because they don't feel safe so it's a catch-22 situation if you uh, appreciate what i'm saying you are also saying that this is also a social issue so obviously that would mean that the people would need to be educated about the use of these wetlands and what they are there for because obviously if they are meant to purify or lessen the stagnant water that is there in the area that need to be educated or informed about the use so that they are not polluted. So one of the big problems is that uh, a lot of decisions are made by uh, let's say bureaucrats uh, who haven't got uh, the right understanding of the situation on the ground. A lot of decisions are made by engineers who uh, have also their particular way of doing things and I'm an engineer myself so I have to be uh, careful what I'm saying to my colleagues but very often engineer uh, thinks uh, this is the best solution yeah solution A produces a manual for solution A and uh, gives it uh, to the people who pay them and say say, here we go that's a system that's how to do it and uh, pay me and I'm going away but with this approach the problem is that uh, the people who actually uh, benefit or should benefit from these kind of systems which engineers design and this could be constructed wetland or any other kind of treatment system need to be informed about uh, it uh, better than they are at the moment they need to be uh, made part of decision making process they need to get ownership of their own infrastructure because of the lawlessness uh, in these areas i think it's important uh, that the people understand that this is their infrastructure which is there for them and makes their life better and it's in their own interest to take care of it and to uh, to be part of it. What I'm trying to say basically is uh, a participatory uh, approach would be necessary, not just informing the people that what will be done uh, for them, but it would be done for them and with them and uh, with their agreement, with their buy-in and potentially with their help. And uh, you could, for example, uh, design uh, systems that uh, can be implemented with people who actually live there on the ground. You can have them uh, working uh, on the project, uh, on the de- uh, on the impl- uh, implementation process, in the construction of it, because a lot of the systems are not requiring a lot of a uh, uh, lot of knowledge in terms of building it. So people who live there could actually uh, work uh, on their own systems and uh, could actually. Earn 
earn some money as well and then uh, they learn uh, the value of them and they learn how they can uh, operate them and uh, then they get ownership if they worked on them and uh, uh, and use their own sweat uh, uh, and time uh, uh, to make it work so uh, and then uh, you are more likely to get a, a better take up uh, by the population and they're also less likely to uh, damage those elements uh, uh, where they get ownership from let's also just talk about how effective are the constructive uh, wetlands and in theory what are they really meant to do are they just meant to clear stagnant water that is in the area to just create so that there aren't diseases that are airborne or waterborne that, that, that erupt, like, you know, your malaria and your cholera and, and all of Understand. that. Constructed wetlands or any kind of nature-based solution, they uh, 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 basically uh, work on the principle of uh, uh, biological uh, removal of uh, contaminants. And what I mean by removal, they are either uh, degraded, uh, mineralized, so that you have, let's say, particular conta- contamination, let's say human feces. And then uh, due to biodegradation, you end up with gas, you end up with water, and you end up with individual minerals that can't be broken further, further down. So, and this all works uh, biologically and uh, because it's very warm in South Africa it's not such a big problem uh, to get these systems functioning very well so uh, without uh, needing that much space if this makes sense and uh, if you have systems uh, which uh, are uh, more space efficient like for example vertical flow wetlands then uh, you don't need that much space either and if you have systems uh, like uh, subsurface flow vertical wetlands then you don't have any standing water so there wouldn't be any risk of, uh, let's say, mosquito breeding grounds or any stagnant water on the top where playing children or so uh, could uh, get themselves uh, dirty and uh, where they might uh, suffer because they uh, intake some of the water, so uh, either accidentally or deliberately. So what I'm trying to say, the technology is there. It works very well because it's warm. It's uh, natural biodegradation processes. So uh, um, that uh, could work. Wow. And I also realized from this interview that it is a much bigger problem than we could have imagined because you mentioned so many other stakeholders within the problem-solving aspect of this problem that we are faced with. But thank you so much for granting me this interview. It has been a very enlightening interview and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very very much. I really enjoyed this. I hope that things will actually change in the future, that we are successful with our Project Range Solutions, which runs for another three years, and that we are also successful in winning uh, one or two of these large European grants. And uh, we will more about uh, know more about this in autumn next year. And uh, if we are lucky, then uh, the projects, uh, the other two projects could start Uh, uh, as uh, early uh, as uh, the beginning of 21, which seems to be a long time frame. But if a lot of people uh, have to look at at our proposals that we make, uh, uh, this unfortunately is how long it takes. So thank you very much again for having me and for giving me the opportunity to make some kind of advertisement uh, for a solution for uh, these terrible problems that uh, people are facing in places like Alexandra. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. It's time for Unscience, where we look at the stranger side of research and get a silly, a little bit silly with the research that scientists make time for. Today's Unscience was produced by Nondumiso Lehuzo. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience.
Lindo, how often do you experience deja vu? Thinking, no, I was here. I know exactly what is going to happen next. <laughs> You've basically described all of my deja vu experiences, Nondu. I even resolved to checking where everyone is standing, trying to calculate why they're wearing the same outfits that I once saw them in, in the same space. <laughs> and I feel the same way and say the same things. It's just a weird experience. I know, right? Because I do the exact same thing. So, memory researchers have come up with a new theory on why deja vu is accompanied not only by feelings of prediction but also an I knew that that was going to happen feeling which is in fact an illusion so even though you feel like you know what was about to happen you don't okay you have my attention you know sometimes you even predict that your friend on your left will pass a glass of water to the friend sitting in front of you and when it actually happens it's like I am mind blown. And then obviously you feel like a prophet or something because you knew it was going to happen. I mean, yes, because deja vu does not happen on a regular basis. But when it does, it feels like you're some telepath. I even thought maybe it's because I did this in my past life for some reason. <laughs> oh, I just <laughs> wish I had the answers to this occurrence. I also once thought that it has to be a supernatural thing. It got out of hand when I asked someone in my state of deja vu if we had been there before or whether it was just me. But Anne Cleary, a memory researcher at Colorado State University who is one of the world's experts on deja vu, has developed a new theory as to why we often resolve to thinking, you know what, I knew that was going to happen all along, when we actually didn't know what was going to happen. In fact, just an illusion, as I said. Okay, Nondu, so you're saying my feelings are just a disillusionment. What do you mean? How does this even come about? Well, she often induces deja vu in human subjects as part of her laboratory experiments. And she had experiments before. The one we're talking about, which uncovered a strong predictive bias in people having deja vu. That they feel like that they knew what was going to happen next. But in the lab during her experiments, people who were having deja vu were not able to actually predict what was going to happen next. That predictive feeling, however intense it was, I'm sorry, I have to tell you, it was just a feeling. But Nundu, how did the people in the lab feel different about predicting the next action in their state of deja vu? What happened during the lab experiments exactly? Well, what Anne and her co-authors did was they tested subjects in a video game-like scenario created in The Sims virtual world. You know the game, right? Yes, Sims. What an era ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So the human subjects were asked if they were expecting, ex excuse me, experiencing deja vu. Next, the virtual scene would randomly turn to the left or the right. Then participants were asked whether the scene unfolded the way they had expected or not. And in a later experiment, participants were further asked to rate the familiarity of the scene, both before and after the turn. So the researchers found that when intense feelings of prediction accompanied deja vu, they were strongly correlated with feelings of post-diction, that after the experience, the participant knew what particular turn was going to happen. However, the experiment was set up so it would be impossible for them to know because the turns were made at random. So this feeling that you get of, yes, I knew that this was going to happen, is not real. Exactly that. That I knew that was going to happen bias was very strong when deja vu occurred during the experiment, and especially strong when the scene happened to be rated as very familiar. But like the feelings of prediction, the feelings of having gotten the prediction right are not rooted in reality. In other words, deja vu gave the subjects in the lab not only predictive feelings, but a strong hindsight bias after the fact.
Okay. So our brain tricks us into thinking we know exactly what was going to happen when the feeling is just a proponent of deja vu. Yes. According to her prior experiments, Anne concluded that deja vu is a memory phenomenon in which we're trying to retrieve a memory, but we can't actually place it. Sort of like feeling a word on the tip of your tongue. Hmm. Nandu, I still like the idea of having prophetic skills and predicting what will happen (laughs) when experiencing deja vu. I don't think I can let that go. Nandu, now that you've mentioned this, don't you wish we could have our, you know, other illusionary predictions of the quest- of our question papers for our exams and even our memos? Oh, <laughs> Lindo, that would be a dream. More disillusionment, please, in that regard. <laughs> well, that was unusual, unlikely, and science. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside. Well, back to the Deja Vu um, experience, or talk rather. Mm -hmm. I mean, what other experiences have you had of Deja Vu? I mean, I know for myself, I would be so glad if we were to experience, you know, exam, like experience the Deja Vu Mm -hmm. of exam papers and memos on top of that. And all experiences, man, you know what I mean? I know, I know exactly what you mean. I can't forget the one time I had this crazy deja vu experience, Lindor. So it was a family gathering and, you know, all family members were there. I had my cousins, I had friends there. And, you know, family gatherings, we normally have that period where we all just keep quiet and a speaker speaks right Mm -hmm. like your dad or your uncle the Mm -hmm. famous family uncle okay so linda you know i was chilling there and in that moment everything just paused for a second and i was like no there's no way i have been here Mm -hmm. uncle said this and then uncle said what i thought he would say right okay and then grand grand my grandmother walked into the room exactly the way it had happened in my deja vu scene right yeah which is crazy so that's that that's my experience so i had to stop and be like wait 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 um are we rehearsing or is this actually happening because i i thought there was no way we could be having a repeat moment i remember yeah i remember when you also mentioned in the unscience that it's more or less likened to having prophetic skills. Mm. So now I sometimes ask myself, so people who do actually have the ability to prophesy, do they actually tell the difference that this is me having a deja vu or it's actually a prophecy that comes to me? <laughs> I wonder. I really yeah. do wonder, Lindo, if that is the truth. I mean, you you go to church. Do you go to church? Of course I do. You see? So you should, you should ask the prophet. Oh, you should ask me? Yes. You should ask the prophet. I didn't say I was a prophet. No, you should ask the prophet. Oh, I should ask my prophet. Okay. Yes. I'll yes. ask that. I'll, I will definitely do that. All right. So, no. Next up, we go into a, we go into a break and then catch us right there. This is the Science Inside. On tonight's show, we spoke to Miklas Scholz from the Lind University of Sweden, who touched on the methods he has been looking into with the various ways in which we can sustain water. Now, I have to tell you, he has published four books and 220 journal articles, so I do encourage you to go and look and see how we can sustain our water. 
Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lipere, Nondumiso Lohuto, and Zaina Bayet. And also, the guy behind our tech is Gutwana Serame. You can access our podcast on vits.journalism.co.za slash science. And the Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. From myself, Linogutlete Makwe, and the team, have yourselves a very good night. The Science Inside Podcast.